everyone, and welcome to Sparks 538's Science Podcast, where we read interesting science writing and then talk about the big ideas behind it. I'm science editor Blythe Terrell, and this week we'll be talking about The Hunt for Vulcan by Thomas Levinson. Here today are two members of our awesome 538 science team. We have Christy Ashwanden. Hey, Christy. Hey, Blythe. Nice to be back. Yeah. And we have Maggie Kurth Baker. Hey, Maggie. Hi. All right. So, The Hunt for Vulcan. Christy, tell us what it's about. Sure. So there's this guy, you may have heard of him, Isaac Newton. Ah, yeah. He came up with this, uh, became somewhat famous, uh, theory of gravity, came out in 1687. <laughs> um, this theory very elegantly predicted the motion of the solar system, except it was very soon discovered that uh, the planet Mercury had this slight wobble in its Ooh. orbit that could not be explained by the pull of Venus or Earth. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. Science yeah. mystery. Yes. Science mystery. <laughs> so... At the time, uh, there seemed to be only one solution, and that was that there must be some as-yet-undiscovered planet that was exerting a gravitational force on Mercury, and we just couldn't see it because of the way that it was situated so close to the sun. Um, mm-hmm. It was also postulated that it, it could be maybe not a single planet, but a cluster of asteroids. But most people thought that it was a, a planet that was planet just, waiting, yes, just waiting there to <laughs> be found. <laughs> so. This theory made perfect sense with Newton's theory, and so people really became convinced that there was this planet out there, and it was just, you know, waiting to be discovered by human eyes. And so people set about trying to find it, and in a few cases, they actually became very convinced that they had found it. So they're like, oh, there's a planet, (laughs) and we found it, so... This all makes sense. Hurrah. We're good. Right. Right. I mean, the theory had just become sort of so accepted that people were just like, all right, it's there. It's just sort of a matter to be found. Trust Newton. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Trust Newton. So anyway, um, this guy, Edmund Modeste, I'm going to totally butcher his name, Lescarbot. I I do not. Lescarbot. Lescarbot. Yes. Uh I'll I'll go with that. Now I know who you're talking about. It was the pronunciation (laughs) that was causing the problem. So he was he was sort of like a gentleman physician and amateur astronomer. He had a little like you do. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. He had a little astronomy hut in his backyard, and uh, he was the first person who sort of convincingly found it. This was in 1859. So quite a ways, quite quite some time after Newton. Wait, and does the planet have we said does the planet have a name at this point already? So he, it was after he had reportedly found it that it was, it was christened as Vulcan. Ah. Great name, huh? The Hunt for Vulcan. (laughs) Yes, the Hunt for Vulcan. And so he was working from this homemade observatory and he very, the key thing that happened here is he managed to convince um, this guy who at that time was sort of the world's most famous astronomer, Mm -hmm. Urbain Joseph Le Verrier. Le Verrier? Verrier? I don't know. Yeah, also don't speak French. Anyway, and so he was the the director of the Paris Observatory, and he had recently discovered Neptune, and so that sort of gave him cred, you know, street cred. And mm-hmm. um, so he went out to, to visit Les Gabos. Uh, <laughs> the gentleman, our gentleman, yes, our gentleman astronomer. Our gentleman astronomer. Doctor. Yeah, and so, Dr. you know. gentleman astronomer. Right. So he went out, and, you know, at first it was like, well, come on, can this amateur guy, like, who is this this person? And But he went out and became quite convinced. And, mm-hmm. in fact, um, you know, after he went to, to visit the guy and became convinced himself, he, he sort of was telling and retelling the story until it became this sort of, like, hero's journey epic, you mm-hmm. know, quite embellished. About, so it's an so, epic, the, the epic of the doctor, right? So like, when, do we, when do we send our, our space probes to Vulcan, then? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, so I, 
I have to say, though, it wasn't just him. So after this, then all of a sudden it was like planet fever, right? Everyone was looking for it. And there were actually people who were convinced then they were going back and saying, oh, yeah, I think I must have seen it. You know, last year, that, that fuzzy thing, yeah. like that, that, that was Vulcan. Like, no, I totally discovered this. Yeah, there, there's a lot of second guessing. My like girlfriend that planet that lives in Canada. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Exactly. And so but but over time, um, it sort of became like for every person who'd seen Vulcan, there were like dozens who hadn't, you know, and this, mm-hmm. this was, you know, so there were only specific circumstances. Um, circumstances under which you could sort of be expected to see it because of its situation between mm-hmm. Earth and the sun. So eclipses were a very good time to try and look for it when it would be um, passing through. Anyway, but it wasn't showing up. And so over time, it was sort of this idea of the abs- is the absence of evidence, evidence of absence. Mm-hmm. Important question that I think we should come back to. So Vulcan's status sort of became less certain. Mm-hmm. So and- Vulcan, we're sure of Vulcan, we're less sure of Vulcan. Right. We're, okay. we're sure of Vulcan. Oh, but wait. It was just that one time now, and maybe some others that are looking a little dubious. Anyway, finally, this other guy you may have heard of, Albert Einstein, Uh comes along with his theory of general relativity. And Mm -hmm. uh, what this says is that something really massive like the sun curves in space-time. And what that means is that things don't always go in a straight line. And that sort of opened up the idea that there could be this curving path here. And with space-time curve, Mercury's wobble that that people were witnessing and and observing um, was actually perfectly predicted by his theory. So Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, we no longer... So so Vulcan had sort of been created, invented, seen to solve this problem, right, with Mm -hmm. Newton's law. Then Einstein comes around with this new new theory, and all of a sudden, we sort of have no use for Vulcan. <laughs> like, like the problem that Vulcan was created to solve no longer exists. Mm-hmm. So, and then it just vanishes. It in just a puff vanishes. Of logic. What is yes? The, what it is does. It does. Um, like you, you had sort of um, been interested in in this whole sort of sequence of events with Einstein mm-hmm. um, finding this because he didn't just find it on his own either. Oh, no. So, yeah. So while Einstein was working through his enormously complicated theory of relativity, he realized at a certain point that he like couldn't do the math he needed to do to prove his theory and went to a math friend and was like, hey, I think this is I'm like I feel good about this. I think this is real, but I just like straight up do not have the math skills I need to get from point A to point B or whatever Einsteinian way you would say that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I thought that was really interesting that Einstein was like, I have limitations, and I'm going to go to somebody else who can fill, you know, who can teach me the math. I mean, he didn't just like say, please do my math. He was like, teach me all this extremely complicated math, and I'll take however many months it takes uh, to to be able to prove this theory that I that I. Ha- the pieces of which are coming together elsewhere. Well, and that goes kind of back to the Newton part about this, Mm -hmm. right? Because you have this story of Edmund Halley sort of running into the same kind of problem where he had this big math issue that he couldn't solve himself and the guy he was trying to compete against couldn't solve himself. And he ends up like going to hang out with his friend Newton who has figured out how to solve it but is too much of a social idiot to actually be able to explain it to anyone. (laughs) So they kind of end up working together Mm -hmm. to like get the math part done correctly and get the presentation part done correctly. And it was a really interesting story to me of how like using each other's skills and building on each other's shoulders in Mm -hmm. a way that we don't often hear about with things like gravity. I feel like that was a big lesson to me in this is it was really just a very interesting um, sort of demonstration of the way that that good science is very collaborative. And so each person who 
kind of came along was building on previous work and in many cases collaborating you know with their contemporaries but it really sort of showed you know by following the the tale of this planet that was there and then it wasn't it really shows how you know just the, to me the whole book was really uh, a demonstration of the scientific process and how it works mm. and we we think of it as you know discovery and everything makes sense and really it sort of it, it moves and fits and starts and so mm-hmm. you know in retrospect we can laugh about oh Vulcan the, the planet that was there and that wasn't but that sort of stuff happens all the time in science, right? I mean, and that, it's that's, a, yeah, and it's supposed to. I mean, the right. point, yeah, like that's right. the big, you know, when we talk about the big science ideas behind pieces of work, this one was very much a here is a story of how the scientific method works, and also how hard it is to get past uh, the, the the point at which you are certain that something is true, and that when the evidence is contrary to what you, yeah, think and true. I mean, it's it, it's a very good example of of how science can be and should be ideally is self-correcting but it, it happens but it shows the time scale is not always you know even within one person's lifetime yeah i mean and, and it also sort of shows how it i mean you know as if we needed another example that the great man theory of history doesn't really hold up under scrutiny mm-hmm. and it's not just one dude it's in a, never just uh, one in dude. a cave were you two as struck as i was by the absence of women in this book yeah <laughs> i mean i was i was I noticed it. I wouldn't say I was struck. I mean, I think there was one point at which somebody's sister helped with something. Right. Uh, Isn't there always? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe there were a couple. Or there was, there were like, I, I did notice them because there were two or three mentions of, of women, but I don't, I don't think by name typically. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. But it, it made me wonder, you know, clearly, you know, and I don't I don't fault the author here, Levinson, at all with this, but it, it just sort of shows, you know, that history, you know, the way history is written and you, you sort of wonder, you know, I, I can't imagine that there weren't some other women who were involved in some way or another. They weren't mentioned um, probably not through the author's fault, but because, you know, they're, they're sort they of did, lost to history. Yeah, they weren't in the record either. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, that, I did notice that. So this was so that, this was an example of the scientific method working, but it was also an example of people really sticking to their guns and and looking for the one thing they, they thought solved the problem rather than trying to figure out if they're they're trying to solve the right problem. You know what I mean? That's not a very good way of explaining it. To me, it sort of boils down to this issue of if you have a theory and you have a, you know, that is supposed to be predicting something and you have, and and sort of the the analogy that I think of, you know, in a different context would be sort of this so-called reproducibility crisis in psychology where people are doing replication and a, a finding does not replicate. And so the question is, is that because the finding is wrong or is that because, you know, there's some sort of nuance that is not being captured and is not being replicated in, in the replication. And so in this case, you know, with the planet, it's like, okay, so the fact that, you know, we first of all need this thing to make Newton's law work properly, does that mean that Newton's law is wrong or does it mean that we don't have the nuance? And so like if, if the answer is, well, Vulcan, you know, we need Vulcan, it needs to exist, then that's, that's answering the question to say, no, there's just more nuance that we haven't, you know, there's still something out there left to discover. But the question here is sort of like, at what point when things aren't matching up, how do you how do you distinguish between those those two things? Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that your idea is wrong or that your idea is mostly right. But, you know, you're lacking some important. Yeah, you don't have the full picture. Yeah. There's some other thread that you haven't quite understood yet. I thought it was kind of interesting that it sort of felt like we were being presented with this story as an example of how science can lead itself astray and that you know, n- the whole idea that Vulcan still existed was this sort of example of like it not self-correcting for a really long time. Um, That's interesting. I didn't get that. I, I kind of, I sort of got that a little bit. And like that just, 
that there was kind of this idea that uh, I guess maybe not not self-correcting, but that there was this idea that uh, the fact that everybody believed in Vulcan was somehow not science not working properly. I mean, I I think it's interesting because it I mean, it was everybody doing everything right. Yeah. And I I think but to me, that's sort of the lesson is that on the larger scale, Science is self-correcting. It doesn't always self-correct in one person's lifetime. I mean, there is sort of this idea that may have some truth to it, that sometimes someone has to die for, for the new thing to come up. But I think one of the um, important lessons to me here is that people are a product of their time and place and mm-hmm. that you can have these cultures that exist in science and that sometimes um, these larger changes or ways of thinking that need to evolve take time. And so what happens is you become so convinced of something. And so part of the problem here was that Newton had such a brilliant theory. I mean, it was his theory was so sort of you know, it was elegant. It was mm-hmm. And elegant. everybody likes elegant. It's well, sexy. Yeah. But it also worked really well, right? This was right. a very minor problem mm-hmm. in the big It worked big for context. most of the other planets. Right. I mean, yeah. still, we still use it today. Yeah, I mean, it's taught matters. in physics classes, yeah. right? Right. Like, it, it's sort of like, it's something that works really well most of the time. And there's, you know, it's, it's more complicated than that. So sometimes you need to bring out, you know, the big general relativity stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the point here is that you start thinking about things and you become, so in this case, people became so convinced that this sort of explained everything so that they were blinded to the other, to the other thing. And I think it's really about sort of these human biases that we, we bring to things. And I think here, you know, it's worth talking about the fact that, um, you know, Newton really saw God's hand in these things. And he he really, um, you know, some of the people that came after him and were working, you know, to take his, his ideas to the next level um, didn't see that. But he, he really did. And those are things that, you know, we're not necessarily seeing now. But that, that was really, he was a product of that time. So what it brought up for me, though, is this question of, like, they weren't just, like, basing this on belief. You know, they were basing this on evidence. You know, they they thought they had evidence and other, they thought other people were backing them up. You're talking and about Vulcan. Vulcan, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, like reproducing. Yeah, okay, I see it too, right? So how do you know when you're the person changing that paradigm and realizing that Vulcan's not there? And how do you know when you're the person seeing the thing that's not there? Right, yeah. I mean, this this no, kind of goes to that like, famous... <laughs> I mean, it's kind quote, of crazy-making, right? It's yeah. a hard question. Like, it's... Yeah, I think it goes to that famous Feynman quote, you know, you have to be careful not to fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. And it, it really, it's so easy. And I think once you sort of have enthusiasm for your own ideas, it's very hard to be open-minded about them, even when you want to be and, and think that you're being. Yeah. And so it's really a lot about, you know, replicating, 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 trying to falsify your your ideas to see, like, does it really hold up? Does it hold up in this context? Does it mm-hmm. hold up in that context? And but that's something that, you know, I think we're learning more and more in the modern times that, you know, we need to be doing more of that. And that maybe often our tendency is to say, oh, we've got it. There's yeah. the answer. Let's move yep. to the next thing. Yeah. Well, I think there's always groupthink. And it's very, very hard to push back against the greatest idea that science has ever known. Right. I mean, well, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. to to say, oh no, the problem isn't that Vulcan is missing. The problem is with Newtonian theories. It's like nobody. I mean, I think that would that would probably be a very very hard thing to do in the science climate of that time. It's like this guy came up. It's like who the hell are you to be the person who's like maybe Newton wasn't right about everything? Right. Well, but I mean, and like there are definitely examples in the history of science of the people pushing against that boundary being the ones who were wrong. Right. Right. right? Well, and I, I think and the ones who are right. I mean, so you don't know just because of what actions you're taking or like just because of what line you, what position you sit on in the line between like established knowledge and 
you know, new knowledge. Right. And I think it's worth saying here that Newton was wrong about some other things. I mean, he had, it's interesting to me that his heirs sort of downplayed this apparently. So he had sort of gotten into this alchemy stuff, which is just, you know, now we sort of look at that and really poo-poo it, you know, at the time. So we remember, we sort of revere him for the theory, you know, the, the gravity stuff, but you know, it could have been that that other stuff was right. And then we would be doing the opposite. So some of this is sort of hindsight and it's sort Mm -hmm. of interesting to me, apparently, the University of Cambridge uh, declined this donation of Newton's alchemy papers. So it's sort of like this idea of like, oh, let's just forget about that. You know, here's this great guy. And let's like, and so I think, you know, and And when we're talking, sorry, when we're talking about alchemy, we're talking about like trying to turn other things into gold and stuff. I mean, is that like, like trying to figure out how to make metals out of other... I mean, his stuff was a lot more like, I mean, his stuff was chemistry based. Yeah. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't just like, you know, poof, rabbit out of hat magic. Yeah. But... I I just don't really understand. I don't really know exactly. I mean, it was... Alchemy at that time period was a really interesting, a really interesting field. Yeah, <laughs> which sounds weird when I say it. But I mean, Maggie like, is currently an alchemist. Yes, right? <laughs> yes. nobody worry about it. <laughs> Wait, I'll show you all. She is an um, alchemist. She turns ideas into words, into stories. It's beautiful. Um, but like, I mean, you're talking about like this field that had this really complex, you know, confluence of what we would call the beginnings of chemistry. And the stuff that, like, produces horoscopes in the newspaper mm-hmm. and, like, Christian mythology. And, I mean, like, just it, there were so many layers of stuff in there that I think it's really hard for someone today to, like, actually understand mm-hmm. because it was such a product of its cultural time and place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I actually have read some books on, um, like, the history of metalworking that have pointed out that, you know, it it also wasn't like a totally illogical idea because there are smelting techniques that sort of make precious metals seem to appear out of non-precious material because you're getting like these tiny little bits sort of, Hmm. you know, pulled out of the rock. So like it, it, it was built off of foundations that became in a lot of cases, real science, plus Mm -hmm. all this cultural stuff mixed in that made no sense. Yeah. You were saying about the, I think that's super interesting. <laughs> Christy, you were saying about the papers, though, were you, uh, that, that Cambridge was like, no thanks. Yeah, it was really, you know, I think it's just worth worth noting that, you know, we tend to, so even now, so Newton was a product of his time and his culture, but we are also living in a particular time and culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we are looking at his work through that particular no time we're and neutral culture. yeah right exactly. absolutely we are we are so unbiased we just know everything <laughs> i've never had a thought <laughs> enter my head until i started reading this book right. so i'm yeah, coming at it right, yeah. completely zero <laughs> but you know it makes me wonder reading this book i think okay so what ideas are we yeah. revering right now that are going to turn out to just be absolute crap i That's- mean I, I will say reading this book i kind of had the thought that like the people who don't think climate change is real yeah. right might have had more luck establishing themselves as something other than cranks if they had talked about it they're talked about their doubts in the context of like something like this right like than, people have been wrong before about right, something everyone believes rather than in the context of it's a conspiracy yeah oh but i because don't think like, it's i don't think it's untrue that people have tried that though i, I, mean, I don't I, think it, i don't think it is untrue but like it hasn't been like the big public thread right and that uh, you know maybe that's a mistake on their part 
Um, and I think it's also interesting that, like, if you actually, I mean, if you actually talk to climate scientists, there's a lot of, like, little tiny things that don't change the overall outcome of climate knowledge, but that um, do change, like, the details that they are still arguing over and that they do think they could be wrong about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think a lot of people don't quite understand that there's that nuance in how science argues about what we think we know. Yeah, I mean, I guess this kind of comes back to this drumbeat that I keep keep playing, which is that, you know, I think that the public vastly under, under I was going to say underestimates, that's not the right wording, but they don't understand. I think that we have done a poor job of helping the public understand the uncertainty that is sort of inherent yeah, yeah, yeah. in science. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, you have this experiment, you get this result, and that tells you a very specific thing about that particular experiment and these things. And so, you know, we're trying to get these grandiose and big picture answers, but that all works incrementally. And, you know, just as uh, Newton's ideas were not all perfect, they were very good waypoints along the way. There's things that we still use, we still find use of. Doesn't mean that every little part of them is absolutely correct. Um, But that doesn't mean that the whole idea that there's gravity is wrong either. And I think that, you know, with climate change, it's very similar sort sort of situation where you have a very complex problem and you have a lot of nuance and we have a lot of uncertainty in sort of the, the minute details, but the big picture is sort of becoming clearer and clearer the more that we look at it. And right. at this point, it's just not reasonable to say that it's it's not happening given the evidence that yeah. we have. Is there an idea, this is something I've been thinking about, that that you, either of you feels is a core piece of your understanding of science and that would not necessarily crush you, but sort of that would blow your mm. that it would, it would blow your mind to have a new discovery of mm. some kind, like throw you know flip it on its head completely, or just blow it up. Is there like what what's at the core of your your own like scientific belief system? Is it something? Oh, like, that's interesting. I think for me, it would be if we were to discover that somehow our observations were not as we they were. I was going to say that they're unreliable. We know that, that our we, observations can be very unreliable. Christy, but we have a yeah. whole podcast. I know, right. <laughs> um, but, but what I mean is that, you know, that, that maybe that our capacity to observe and to test things is not, you know, the, the basically... So the scientific method right, is, yeah, deep, it, is flawed yeah, in yeah, some yeah. way. Yeah. To me, that is, you know, what is all of science built on? It's built on the scientific method. And if we were to somehow discover that the scientific method had some... You know, fatal, huge flaw. fatal flaw. Hmm. That, that would, to me, that, that's that would what, shake which, your that's what core. would pull the rug. That would shake you yeah. to the core. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't know that I have a good one off the top of my head, but um, I mean, I, I definitely agree. And like, I, what's interesting is I can't even see like, <laughs> I can't even see like how we would suddenly discover that the scientific method is so fatally flawed. You know, but also, like, right? Isn't this the definition of a blind spot? Is it exactly. visible? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, the fact that I can't see that is sort of right. What, what don't I know? That? Well, I don't know what I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the unknown. Unknown. Thanks, thanks Donald. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, but it's also. I mean, it's true though. I think there are. You know. I was trying to think about this too because, you know, so I gave myself a little bit of a head start and still didn't really come up with anything <laughs> I, because I, I, I was thinking about it from a public health perspective, which is part of my, ba- my background. So I was like, okay, is it, you know, what if you, what if HIV was somehow like completely found to be unrelated to the development of AIDS in some way? You know, I was thinking about some Well, of there core, are conspiracy theories that say that. Sure, of course. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, but, but what if, you know, what if they aren't conspiracy theories? What if the, the, that science is the right science somehow? You know what I mean? But those ideas, I think... But that wouldn't necessarily blow up my whole understanding of science. Exactly. I mean, that's very, that's yeah. a disease-specific And that, that's kind of where I'm struggling, too, yeah. is that there's a lot of things that would blow my mind right. if they turned out not to be the case. But I, it wouldn't, like, 
make me never trust science again? I don't know. Maybe a, maybe the climate change piece is the is what it would would take. Like if somehow there were some huge thing that had been missed for decades and decades and decades. And it was like, oh, my gosh, this kind of like this really does change everything. If there was something there, I think that would shake my foundation. Do you think it, see to me, it would depend on what it was and how it came about, because mm-hmm. if the climate scientists that, you know, you go hang out at the American Geophysical Union and if those guys suddenly were like, oh, we didn't carry the two. Right. You know, like that, I, that would blow my mind. So if it came from p- the people who, who you right. already right. understood but I the think, science. I mean, I, I just want to butt in here. I feel like with climate change, we have too many. There isn't, it's not reliant on one, like this is, it's a little bit different, I think, than the situation with Vulcan where it's not dependent on one, like there's so many different observations and we see this and there, there's, mm-hmm. there's, I mean, part of what makes it so hard to like get all the certainty is that there are, there is so much complexity, but we also have so many observations and so many different observations and so much confirmation that it's like, well, there's drought here and there's this there and the, the glaciers are, are melting sort of everywhere. And can we talk for a moment about what uncertainty means in yes. this context? Because I think that that's an important part of it. Um, because like the way that we are taught science and like most people never take a college science class. Most people never, you know, do much with science beyond college. And when you're in high school and junior high and grade school, the way you are taught science is like, here's a collection of facts that you memorize. Mm-hmm. And that is very much the Newton invented gravity. Here's gravity. Gravity is real. And now on to the next thing. Right. And um, it's not the asking questions part. It's not the asking question the, part. It's not the scientific method. The doing I mean, the you spend like, part. you know, a chunk of time on the scientific method, but like not in a real way that teaches you how it continues. It's sort of taught as like this point A, point Z, like that's it's how done. we got here. Right. And, and now we're all, done. And now we know the science because and, we yeah, did this. Exactly. That's and and not as like, and then people keep poking at this thing, you know? Yeah. Right. Or, you know, and uncover different pieces about different right. uh, information about different parts of that. And then they, nobody really teaches picture. you about error bars in high school. Right. Yeah. That's right. yeah, that's that's true. I guess but one I'm thing, maybe, one yeah. thing that's really interesting here too is that gravity is also often hold, held up as like, oh, you think you know uh, evolution's only a theory? Well, so is gravity. gravity. Well, you yeah. know, and everyone yes, because you're you right. Have this experience, <laughs> like, you know, here I have this pen. I can drop it on the floor. I know that it's going to drop. Like I can I can predict that. Right. Um, and yet there's you know as this book shows us there is a lot of uncertainty and nuance and and whatever within that and we just don't you know it's not something that's in our everyday experience and yet it pervades sort of all of science that there are. Are, are these things and then you know, no, nothing is ever quite as straightforward as we would like it to mm-hmm. be right what do you what do you guys how do you guys define uncertainty to people like if somebody if somebody wanted to know what we mean by uncertainty about something like gravity <laughs> how what would you say uncertainty is in this context because i mean i think the colloquial definition of uncertainty is that like well we don't know if it's true or not right and this is a much more nuanced kind of well, thing. I think it can be, we know that this is true, but we don't know all of the conditions that must exist or we don't know. I mean, usually we don't know so, how true. Right. And it's, when it, it's like, we know we have observed it in this situation and we're pretty, we're pretty certain about this, these particular conditions. Right. But we don't know if it applies in other. We, and we, so now we're we going can't to say assume. it's true in 100% of situations. Correct. Is that, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah I, I think it is really, really, complicated so i'm sympathetic to people who are who are genuinely confused by that and as you know i know there are some who use it as a cudgel 
um, in, in the debate. But but it is not easy to understand this idea that, you know, we have observation after observation after observation after observation has shown us, you know, has gotten us closer and closer to this to uh, this theory and the scientific this information that we feel like we is now like basically scientific fact but you know i mean you just you know i think that's a very very tricky concept to understand and also i think as we've discussed a little bit in past podcasts it's very difficult to be comfortable with uncertainty of any kind yeah, I mean, this this is like the human condition, right? Like, we yeah. hate uncertainty. We don't deal with it well. We really, really dislike it. And so we, we are always looking for something that we can just sort of, like, jump on as, like, the truth or something to, you know, we just don't, we don't like not knowing, and especially if it pertains to something, you know, that we want to know. Mm-hmm. Right. And it matters. Right. Yeah. 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 Before we keep going with our discussion, here is a word from our sponsor. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling calls or emails to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. And right now, our listeners can post jobs for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com point. That's ZipRecruiter.com point. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com point. A great night's sleep can help you have a great day, and I'm having a lot of great days because I get a great night's sleep every night on my Casper mattress. The Casper mattress was invented with two high-tech foams that give you all the support you need and guarantee you get the best night's sleep ever. It ships for free in a box so small you won't believe it holds a mattress. It's easy to get to your bedroom. And I love that Casper lets you try the mattress for 100 nights in your own home risk-free. They'll come pick it up if you don't love it as much as I love mine and refund you everything, no questions asked. From its breakthrough design to its packaging to letting you try it for 100 nights, it's no wonder Casper was named one of the Fast Company's 50 Most Innovative Brands of 2017. And believe me, sleeping on a mattress is the only way to try it. It beats lying on one in a store for just a few minutes. Get a Casper and get a great night's sleep every night like I do. Go to casper.com slash WTP and use code WTP for $50 toward the purchase of your mattress. That's casper.com slash WTP, code WTP, to get $50 toward the purchase of your mattress. Casper.com. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, we're back. So one of the things that we've touched on a little bit that is also related to this idea of um, us all being products of our time is like the people who are involved, and we've sort of talked about this a little bit. Um, one of the interesting aspects of the hunt for Vulcan is that you have these kind of, I mean, you have some irascible scientist figures. You know, you sort of have, you have Newton, who's... I had no idea he was such an... 
Cool. Can we say that in the podcast? <laughs> I think I think we routinely do. Okay. So, I mean, I, I just had I wrote this quote down because I wanted to read it. Um, this is Levinson speak, uh, writing here. He was irascible, proud, swift to anger, and agonizingly slow to forgive. I mean, not <laughs> a nice you, guy. So Newton is sort of a a nut, an odd duck. Yeah, odd duck is a more appropriate way of but saying that. Le, Le Verrier was even worse, right? I yeah. mean, his bi- biographer sort of attributed one of his underlings suicide to the guy. That's, I mean, he, horrible. Was, he was a terrible yeah. person. He, yeah, well, so, and then at the, so then that I think plays into the challenges of, of pushing back against a person's idea, right? right? Like you right. can't just be like, I work for Le Verrier and I think maybe he's wrong. It's like that guy apparently is, is, is horrible and, it sounds like that's a situation that could suppress any sort of yeah. disagreement. And I do think that, you know, in terms of how we look at our own ideas and how do we challenge ourselves and how do we try to try to look for our blind spots, I think we have to try to bring people around us who disagree with us and have different ideas. And I think that's, A, it's very hard to do. And I think I'm not always very good at it. Well, it's very hard to do and it's harder to do the more important you become. Well, yeah. I think this sort of, like, there's this phenomena, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm not just making this up, where you have these, like, Nobel laureates who, as they get older, like, latch Nobel laureate these- <laughs> syndrome. Yes, exactly. And they, they then they start, like, spewing these completely mm-hmm. whack job ideas, but they've sort of surrounded them, you know, now that they've become all shiny, they sort of feel like they have license to do that. And, and once you have that, that credential, there are a lot of people that are willing to listen to you and, you know, sort of get, it, it gives your wacky ideas this extra shine that they probably shouldn't have. Well, yeah, and I mean, there's there's a lot of stories that I think we've heard over the years of how people's personalities and people's press, I not credentials is not the word I'm looking for, but like press love can get in the way of the scientific process. Planet fever. Right. Well, planet fever. And I'm, I mean, I was thinking particularly of like the guy that for a while got away with faking that he had cloned. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like part of that was mm-hmm. that he just was like got on really good with the press mm-hmm. and like nobody wanted to challenge this thing. It was hard to challenge a thing when he's shiny. Right. Mm-hmm. Just you can be good enough or you can be awful enough <laughs> that it becomes hard for people to confront you. Keys to success, well, everyone. Happened in- <laughs> yeah. right. I'm but going for good enough. The other, the other thing that happened with some of these guys, though, is they also sort of got, because of their success, got into these positions of power where they really sort of were running the show, and yeah. all of a sudden, they're the one in charge, and so there's just, you know, people who um, were naysayers were just not going to ever be given you know, mm-hmm. say in that situation. But I think that we should talk here maybe a little bit about the press because they also played a role here, right? I mean, they really mm-hmm. got on. I mean, mm-hmm. really journalists. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Science um, journalists screwing it up again. Sad. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the lesson here, right? Yeah. And this is something, Christine's you know, I say all the back time. To the seriousness. Yes, I know. But like, look, it's not my job. I am a science journalist, but it's not my job to promote science. I should mm-hmm. be as skeptical about science as I am about everything else. And, you know, when people yeah. tell me things, you know, it's not our job to, you know, just transcribe what the scientists are saying. We should we should bring the same skepticism that we would bring to politics or any other beat. And, you know, that clearly didn't happen in a lot of these things. Well, I mean, like, let's let's also remember that, like, Politics has this problem too, right? Like that political reporters and science reporters and sports reporters. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> the entirety of 538. Mean, yeah. <laughs> um, all we, of our verticals. All yeah. of our verticals. 
we get into these fields because this is a thing that we love. Right. Yeah. Right. Like. Or that you're at least in, interested like, in enough to devote your right, career to. Exactly. Yeah. So like it's really easy to slip over into the kind of reporting that's like, isn't this cool? Yeah. Because you think it's cool because that's why you do this job every day. Yeah. And so like that's I mean, I think that's a constant thing that we all kind of have to like shove back against in our own impulses. It's hard. Well, well again, the blind spots, but also right. yeah. just to point out the, the Vulcan in the Vulcan book, Levinson talks about the New York Times specifically mostly. Um, though some other publications do, because they did some, they had, you know, some of they had some headlines that were like very <laughs> pumped up about Vulcan. Oh, they were pumped. They yeah. were yeah. so pumped. Um, but again, you know, the scientists were pumped too. So yeah. it isn't, you know, it isn't as though the New York Times was like pulling that out of nowhere. It, they, well, but they weren't necessarily a place. Well, like, how would they know? At a certain point, as a science journalist, there's some stuff that like, you know, we can challenge some things. Yeah. Like we, we do those great meta science things that Christy does. And like there are some things in science that we understand enough to challenge. And then there are some things where mm-hmm. when we're when we're talking about writing things in the language of math that like I kind of have to trust that if I interview three people and they all say the same thing, they're probably right. Yeah, right. I mean, right. right you, you can't go back and redo the science. It's just it doesn't. Right. And I think, you know, and it doesn't it's not about I don't think that the kind of skepticism that we're talking about here is about saying to everyone you're wrong or I'm not sure. It's, it's not about necessarily. Um, you know, trying to disprove everyone, but just having that skepticism and realizing that you are talking to someone who has a vested interest. I mean, just like a politician right. is telling you, you know, their talking points, so too is the scientist or the institution or whatever. And, you know, of course, we're all going to, it's hard not to fall prey to like, oh my God, you know, look, this, we're launching, you know, this space vehicle into space. That's pretty damn cool. And like, what am I going to say? Like, oh, I don't really believe that the space shuttle, went, I mean, <laughs> well, somebody tells me there are I probably mean, people out there that the, think that, but. Fake the moon landing. Exactly. Anyway, but, but, you know, I I think it's really about um, just sort of maintaining this healthy distance and making sure that, you know, there are still tough questions to be asked. And I think the space Mm -hmm. program has a long history of this, you know, the sort of um, cheerleader stuff. And then things happen. It's like, oh, wait, we need to, you know, look at the budget with uh, skepticism. We need to look at, you know, some of the failures that they've had and, you know... With, so with why we're doing Mars Week. Exactly, Mars yes. <laughs> yes. Mars series, whatever you want to call it. Um, Earth I, to Mars. I well, Mars is a jerk. Mars is a jerk. Yeah. yeah. Everyone should read that on the website if you yes. haven't yet. It's, it's it's our series of critical stories about what we need to do to get to Mars. After you read it, you probably won't have any interest in going to Mars. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's cool because yeah. you probably won't get that opportunity anyway. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Crushing dreams. That's I, Blythe Terrell. <laughs> like, well, I, I, got I do have a question field, yeah. for you guys, and maybe particularly for Blythe, that, since you're the editor here. Um, you know, so say we got this news that this planet had been found. And it was more than one person saying that they found it. And, you know, they have telescope evidence, you know, astronomical evidence that they have found this thing. How do we do that story in a skeptical way? So I think, you know, in, in the case that that comes to mind from the book, um, several, lots of astronomers at the same time were pointing their telescopes to the sky. It was during an eclipse. They were all, many of them were looking for, for Vulcan, for this planet. One person said he found it and marked it on his his cardboard chart and asked another person to look at to look at that spot. That person couldn't. They were trying to look at something else that they thought might be Vulcan. 
So at the end of the day, you you had in this instance one person out of several who saw something and a bunch of people who saw nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't think the New York Times. I mean that he could very well have seen something. Like how would the the Times know? How would any journalist know? But I do think, and I'm not sure if they did this or not. I think you report like very clearly. Nobody else saw anything. Right. Pay yeah. attention to the details. Yeah. But I also think, like, I want to distinguish here. So it's not our job. So we are, we aren't the scientists here. So it's not our job to, like, right, try right. and replicate the study or, like, you know, whatever. But it's more about making sure that you are having other voices and other experts and other people with the expertise and sort of keeping an ear to the ground to not get so – like, you don't want to get so wrapped up in planet fever that you're sort of not – listening to or hearing, you know, whatever contrary evidence might be out there. Mm-hmm. And I think part of this comes down to, okay, so here's this thing. What what should I be looking for? Like, what what would be evidence that it wasn't what I thought it, that you know, it's being presented as? Like, it, and does that exist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is kind of the typical, not, you know, that's, that's which is sort of the standard way of going about it, right? Like, let's talk to as many people as we can. Let's see. If there are contrary ideas that also seem well-founded, you know, that seem to have a scientific basis where people have evidence for those, and can we just sort of present the body of of work um, and not, you know, do it in a celebratory way? But I think it is tricky because I think science journalists and any journalists um, are as susceptible as anybody else to what's going on around them, to their time, to, you know, being a, a, a product of their culture. And, you know, for example, like, if you... If you think, okay, if you look at climate climate science and you're like, look, the body of evidence is good. The climate change is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, are you then potentially more inclined to look less skeptically at a study, one study related to one piece of evidence related to climate change than you would be? If you were looking at a study about a subject that you knew less about or felt less sure right. of. Right. And I think I think the answer to that should be no. I mean, like, so the most important thing that we can do and the thing that we absolutely must do is always keep open mind. Now, look, as the evidence accumulates for something, you know, when you have this giant pile of evidence to show that something is true and you have like one piece here, that new piece you have to look at. But one little thing that might show a little something, you, you, you have to put it all into context. And so, you know, as something becomes as the uncertainty certainty about a particular issue or a particular idea becomes reduced because science is really a process of uncertainty reduction, right? Mm -hmm. And so as that uncertainty becomes reduced, so you become more certain, although you can never really like completely eliminate that uncertainty, (laughs) right? But as you become more certain, sort of the, the amount of evidence or the level of evidence, you know, it's just going to take more to overturn that, but it doesn't mean that it can't happen. And I think that it's really important that we always keep that open mind and that you are careful not to... Um, you know, just kind of go into things with your mind already made up. Yeah. I mean, so basically what we're saying is that, you know, we too kind of need to surround ourselves with voices that don't always tell us what we expect to hear. Yeah. Like readers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, but I do, I, I do really think it but is. not in all caps. It yeah. is a little tricky. And it, it is a little tricky because I think some, it's easy to become siloed. It's hard. It's, yeah. And you know what? Engaging everybody who disagrees with you or even engaging anyone who disagrees with you is hard. It's a lot of work. You have to um, really care about having those conversations and informing people. And 
And I think it's not always easy to be good at that or to do that or be consistent about that. I know I'm not. I'm not going to engage someone who's just tweeting um, about, you know, writing tweets saying that climate change is a hoax. Like that's not, you don't, I don't don't think that's the same thing. I don't need to engage in that. But what you do need to engage in are actual legitimate studies and peer reviewed, you know, legitimate studies looking at that and and seeing and, and being open to new ideas. Well, and I mean, I, this is one of the things I love about blogs is <laughs> that I am able to, without a whole lot of work on my part, keep up with arguments against right. that, scientific arguments against climate change mm-hmm. theory and kind of understand, okay, like this is what these people are saying and this is what the scientists are saying about this. And that is something that I do, um, mm-hmm. or at least try to periodically. And it is something that you know has proven to be interesting to me in the past. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not to say, I mean, you know, and I think the public who's participating in and, and consuming information, you know, um, I think it's important for everybody to to have a little bit of skepticism and to also, but open-mindedness at the same time. I mean, those two things are not mutually exclusive. But um, yeah, just to know that like things are changing all the time and uncertainty's out there and it's hard and it's like, that's the world we're living in. <laughs> I think the other thing to keep in mind here is thinking about, okay, what are people's vested interests here? Because we all have them. I mean, yeah. the scientists have, you know, the, the scientist presenting the study has a vested interest because he or she did the study and everyone wants to think that they've they're doing good work and they're making grand discoveries and whatnot. So that's their interest, right? There are, you know, economic interests mm-hmm. in a lot of these things too. And, and just keeping those in mind, because I think, it, you know, it doesn't mean that you necessarily dismiss someone out of hand because of those, but it, it sort of will flavor, you know, what they're, what they're saying or, or their credibility and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Oh, agreed. <laughs> agreed. So would you to recommend... The Hunt for Vulcan by Thomas Levinson. Absolutely. Yeah, I, for sure. I really enjoyed this book. And I, I want to mention, too, it's it's a slender book. And it's I, slender. a slender. It's a slim <laughs> little book. Um, but it's a it's a quick read. But I, I really enjoyed it. And I thought that it was very thought-provoking. And I think even if you aren't sort of naturally inclined to astronomy, which I, are there people like that out there? I don't know. <laughs> Everyone must love Now space. you're going to hear from all of them. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, tweet me at no. <laughs> um, but it, it's just a... a a really wonderful um, story of the scientific process and how it works. And one thing I really liked about the book is I felt like it was just sort of the right length too. Like it didn't Mm -hmm. drone, like it's, it's very compelling. And I was impressed with the way that, you know, the characters really kind of came to life given that they were, you know, a lot of this material is coming from historical texts, but yeah, I would, I would absolutely recommend it. I I would agree. I mean, you and I talked a little bit about how he's had trouble keeping some of the characters straight. Um, in all the those history. French names that I can't pronounce. All the French names, and like just mm-hmm. after a while, like dudes and wigs kind of ran into dudes and wigs. And they had, um, but, <laughs> and had snippy conversations, right? Yeah, <laughs> but uh, like other than that, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, there's some charming little illustrations too that I enjoyed very much. Yeah, I mean the Einstein, you know, it's in three sections, and so the Einstein section also does. I thought a pretty interesting, uh, good job of explaining relativity, which is not something that I have a lot of depth of experience in terms of trying to understand how it works. So I mm-hmm. found it like a fairly accessible explanation of that, which was kind of nice too. Mm-hmm. I actually wanted more Einstein, honestly. Yeah. yeah, it was interesting. I thought that it did a really nice job of explaining science. and it, it felt very accessible. Like I, I would not hesitate to recommend this to someone who's sort of not naturally inclined to read science books too. Like it's mm-hmm. not really, have, there's not a lot of math. Or you, you don't need to have advanced knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's right. I totally agree. Wonderful. Well, I think that wraps it up. 
Thank you, Maggie Chris Baker, for joining us today. Thank you, Blythe Terrell. <laughs> Thank you, Christy Ashwanden. Thanks. Nice to be here in New York. Yeah, welcome back. That is it for this episode of Sparks, where we discuss the big ideas behind the hunt for Vulcan by Thomas Levinson. In the second part of the episode, Christy will interview Levinson, so stay tuned for that. Thanks very much to our producers, Chadwick Matlin and Jody Evergan, and thanks to Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada for production assistance. Katie Ferguson was our editor, and Kara Chin is our intern. The What's the Point music is by Rishikesh Herway. As you know, we do this podcast every month in the What's the Point feed. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode and help spread the word. Let us know what you think at podcasts at 538.com. I am Blythe Terrell. Thanks for listening.